Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Emily Wang, the head of product at Spoke. So for those of you who don't know Spoke, Spoke is a simpler, smarter way to manage workplace requests. On Product Love, Emily and I talked a lot about product principles. You know, whether it's design principles, strategic principles, or something else, principles are this idea that you want to give the rest of the team some guidelines, a framework, say, in order to work from. I think product principles are important because they are a shorthand way of communicating why a company or team makes decisions in a certain way. These are concepts that form over time, whether they're intuitive or codified into written word, and they help teams avoid justifying a particular decision based upon things like something someone once said. You know, people are deeply inconsistent. Depending on our mood or whatever we're reacting to, our opinion on a matter can be different. So with Emily, we dove into how we can ensure product principles are made correctly, drive consistency, and are in the best interest of not only our team, but also our customers. Well, tell me your thoughts at ebodak at pendo.io or tweet at me at ebodak. Thanks. So welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Emily Wang, head of product at Spoke. Why don't we kick this off, Emily, with a little overview of your background. Sure. So yes, today I am the head of product at Spoke. We are an early stage software company, but my path into product, I think like a lot of people's paths was sort of not planned out. I remember when I was in business school, there was actually a course called Product Management 101. And I looked at it and I was like, I don't know what product management is and this doesn't look that interesting. And I didn't actually even take it. What I did instead actually out of business school was start my own company. And I thought, you know, it'd be a brilliant idea to take something that I knew a good bit about, which is retail and data, uh, and something that I loved, which is wine. And we built a you know, wine recommendation app called Vinobly. And our biggest differentiator was that we actually got uh, wine inventory data from brick and mortar stores. So the whole point wasn't that you had to order it online. And like many startup ideas, this one did not scale particularly well. And so after I wound it down, sort of sat around and thought, well, you know, as a startup founder, you have to wear all the hats. You do everything from obviously the product side of things, but sales and marketing and finance. And at the end of the day, what did I actually love? And the thing that I realized I loved was taking all of these curiosities and insights about a problem and then working with really talented people and rolling up my own sleeves and solving that problem. And when I talked to different people about like, what types of jobs do that, it turned out it was product management. And so my first formal job out of Vinobly, my first formal product management job was actually at a company called Teespring. Um, and Teespring is a two-sided marketplace. Um, on one side, you have e-commerce with lots of very personalized merchandise. And then on the other side, you have fulfillment and operations because Teespring actually manufactured the products that we sold. And just really, really loved that, you know, loved getting into the whole end-to-end of thinking about our customers, talking to them, you know, shipping the solution, but then actually getting to see the impact of that in the world. Um, so from Teespring, I then went to Intercom, um, spent about a year and a half there on you know, our growth team, and then have been with Spoke for now almost a year. So talk to me a little bit more about Intercom. What was it like as a PM at Intercom? Yeah, I mean, when I joined Intercom, we were just about 
200 people, so much smaller than the company is today. And Intercom, of course, is a software platform that has different solutions targeting salespeople and marketing people and customer success. And the growth team sitting in San Francisco was really trying to solve this problem between people coming to Intercom, maybe hearing about Intercom and excited about it, and how do you take that sort of excitement and then bridge it to actually people being in the product, knowing how to use it and getting value. And I think what the company had realized is that the product teams focused on, let's say, the inbox product or you know, the messages product were so focused on use cases and workflows inside of those products that they actually rarely had the headspace or even the mandate to think about, well, how does a new user encounter your product? And so we thought there was this really awkward but interesting and important bridge between somebody signing up for a trial and somebody actually being activated. And that effectively was the mandate of our growth team. And so in some ways you can think of it as like the new user experience. How do you go from trial to let's say your first three months in? And it was, I think, a particularly interesting set of challenges to solve for because you had to think about a lot of the go-to-market challenges around positioning, pricing, packaging, but then you also had to deeply understand how the underlying products were going to be changing because that would change how you onboard and activate people. Awesome. So talk to me a little bit more about the growth team. How is it structured? What value did it drive for Intercom? You know, we used to say that if the core product teams at Intercom were solving our customers' problems, then the growth team was really solving the business problems for Intercom, but using software to do that. So a business problem you can imagine is, hey, I acquired all of these leads, they seem to be interested, and then suddenly they sign up, but then they churn, right? And they haven't even gotten to see value in your product. So again, how do you kind of build that consistent story, help people see value? There's such a thing as like, you know, technical onboarding, right? In the case of Intercom, it's like you have to put this piece of JavaScript on your website. You have to send through data. But then there's also things that you have to consider, like your entire team and your workflow has to change, right? Every time you introduce a new piece of software, how do you communicate that? How do you get buy-in? How do you get that social proof? And, you know, I would say like there's a lot of travel involved, um, remote teams. You know, in some senses, the San Francisco team was remote from the Dublin teams. And, and so I think one of the hardest challenges that we had to figure out was like, how do we stay really, really close to, to the product teams in Dublin? And you can do as many 7 a.m. calls as you want, but there's nothing quite like being in person on a whiteboard, working through problems together. So lots of travel? Lots of travel, yeah. I think at, at some point I was maybe going to Dublin once a month, but it's a great city in Dublin. I was there for the first time with like Belcito and Product Collectives Conference yeah. industry last year. And, yeah. Uh, Greatly enjoyed it. I love Dublin. It really reminds me of Boston. Uh, in Boston, I had spent you know nine years in Boston, and it has this like you know sort of a more historical charm. It certainly has the seasons, but it has this like vibe and this you know growth. Yeah, energy. and I was there. It was sunny, so I was like, <laughs> I guess that's not all the time. Yeah, but it was beautiful weather, and it was a great time. Really <laughs> enjoyed Dublin. So one of the things you write about and talk about is this concept of product principles. Can you talk about what they are and why they're important? Sure. I think a lot of times when people talk about principles, whether product principles, design principles, strategic principles, it comes from this idea that you want to give the rest of the team some guideposts, some guidelines to follow so that you, let's say the leader of a team, you don't have to be the one involved in every single decision. And as I think about product principles, you know, oftentimes when you're starting to solve 
a new set of problems or encountering a new set of customers, you kind of like intuitively arrive at why one solution works better than another. Um, and when teams are really, really small, you kind of just execute and hustle on this. But I think there's a big danger when that happens because over time, I think what can happen is the team will say, well, you know, we made this particular design decision. We made this into a toggle versus a dropdown, or, you know, we decided that this should be opt-in versus opt-out because so-and-so said so. And that is something that absolutely doesn't scale. And maybe even worse of all, it relies on a single person's opinion. And we as humans are deeply inconsistent, right? Depending on our mood of the day, depending on the thing that we're reacting to, our opinion on, on a matter can be entirely different. And so I think product principles are really important to get to because they are a shorthand and a way of communicating why a company or why a team makes decisions along a certain way. So to give you an example, at Spoke, one of the principles that we follow is this idea of default open, that when you think about actions, when you think about visibility, really anything inside of our web app is by default accessible to anyone inside of the app. We'll have user permissions, and ways for you to restrict it. But by default, everything is open. And that's important to us because Spoke at the end of the day is a piece of software to help cross teams collaborate, share information. And if you're across different teams, oftentimes those interactions are sporadic and casual. So you want to make a product that's really, really easy for casual users to get involved in. And so every time you know, we face, let's say, a customer ask that says, oh, like, you know, I really, really care about privacy. Can you actually just make everything in my app completely private unless I make it open? Having this principle and having this principle be something that's shared across the team actually enables the sales team to explain to this customer why we might be able to give them a setting, but why by default we would actually be open and allows the engineers and the designers as they're implementing each feature, right, to organically think about how to do it. So you get alignment uh, but you get decentralized decision-making. Hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the process you go through in coming up with the principles and the shelf life of those product principles. I think, I think like with many things in, in startup world, it's not very <laughs> scientific or clean. I like to say that, you know, product principles are actually very organically formed. You might even call it like they're like deductively formed. Uh, you maybe find yourself making a set of decisions around how should we handle user actions of this kind, how should we handle user requests of that kind? And over time, like you come up with patterns, right? You say like, oh, you know, I actually always want to enable people to make as many actions as possible. Or, oh, I want to make it super easy for you to bring in outside people. And I think when you find yourself explaining, especially to new people on the team time and again, why certain decisions are made, that might actually be a great signal that in fact, this is like a principle and a heuristic that you yourself follow and that you want to extend to the rest of the team. So, you know, I think we took our first pass at writing down our product principles at Spoke probably six or eight months after I joined the team. And it really was that very organic inflection point of like, I think I've shared my perspective on this like three times this week. Why don't we actually codify it? And then you had asked about shelf life. I mean, I think to talk about the shelf life of, of product principles, we sort of almost have to think about the shelf life of, of more than that inside of a company. Because, you know, in a startup, everything is changing so, so quickly. And yet you have to have some level of stability to guide the team. So I like to think of this as, you know, company missions and company values, I think by and large are, have an indefinite shelf life. You never really plan for them to change. But of course, if your company pivots, if you come up with a new product, those values might actually necessitate changing. 
I think product principles are in some ways rooted and grounded in like the specific customer set that you're going after, right? The principles that you would need to serve very, very small SMB customers might be very different by the time you get to an enterprise. And so if your customer set is largely the same, then I think that matches with the shelf life of your principle. So maybe we might say, you know, your product principles have a shelf life of one to maybe two years. And then below that, you have all of the processes, right, to run your team, whether that's design sprints, engineering sprints, cross-team meetings and updates. Those processes actually, I think, change and need to change quite often. And they might only have a shelf life of, you know, six to nine months as your team scales, especially. So what are the things that startups have have shelf lives? You know, you talked about principles, the processes that support them. And then all of that's driven, I would expect, from a set of values, right? Do you find those stay consistent most times or? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, there might be values that are like internal to an organization. So let's say, you know, at Spoke, we really value this idea of transparency that, you know, we really share as much as possible with the company and, and teams should, should do the same. It's actually hard to think about what would necessitate that value ever changing. So I personally actually haven't lived through an experience where a company's values have changed but that might just be a function of, of what i've seen i don't know what about you have you no seen no I, I haven't myself i was just curious I, mean, I think of values driving some of the product principles product principles like you said are, are in a lot of cases aligned with the customers and the, the attributes of customers you're going after correct yeah and then the processes support those and processes inevitably change as the company scales just out of necessity. Right. And so I was just curious if you've seen that. But I, I agree. I think values should stay consistent. Kind of they're like the guiding lights. Like for us, there's, you know, maniacal, or for us at Pendo, there's maniacal focus on customer, biased act, a few other, you know, core values that have been consistent throughout the whole company. I mean, we've looked early on at tweaking them as we kind of like established who we are, but they're pretty solid. And the tweaks we had were minor, if any. And I've definitely seen our product principles change as the companies change and absolutely seen, you know, processes change because they have to. If they don't, you're not going to be able to scale as quickly. When your product principles have changed, how do they get communicated? And like, when do you realize that they've changed? You know, I, I think that comes down to a lot like what you said, as your customers change, either the size of your customers, the personas you're selling to, or a broadening of the marketplace, so to speak, like mm -hmm. when your product offering gets broader. And, you know, I think communication in any company is a struggle, right? Yeah. Especially if you're growing quickly, it's always a challenge. So we similarly have a trend, you know, we're a very transparent company. I think that helps a lot. Yeah. And then over communicating. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, on the earlier podcast that you had with Rich, like you, I remember you guys talked quite a bit about how enterprise product management, right, can be very different in its dynamics than consumer. And I can imagine a world where, like, as you start serving larger customers, some of the requests that come out actually are run counter to some of your principles. And those might be moments of friction that force a company or force a company to decide, you know, is this a one-off exception or are we actually now saying our underlying principle has actually changed? Interesting. So let's let's chat a little bit about roadmaps and how you establish roadmaps at the earliest stages of the company, and especially given that you might not have a lot of data to work with then. I think we now live in this era where the idea of A-B testing is so so democratized and it's so, you know, it seems so scientific that it's 
it's almost like you would be lazy to not ask for something like, oh, we should you know, test this idea before we go out with it. Or you know, if you're trying to put something on a roadmap to really be able to quantify the impact. But at the end of the day, all we're really doing is we're, we're extrapolating, right? We're saying, I have some sample of data right now, and this is how I think users will behave. If I expand it to 100%, this is how I think they'll behave. But every time I think that you're walking into like a new problem space or let alone building a new business, you have no historical data. You have nothing to guide you to really say, you know, one thing will work better than another. And so sometimes I think in these early stages, I do see PMs spend a lot of time trying to estimate or assume you know, how many customers will adopt this? And if they adopt it, what metrics will change? And if those metrics change, what is then the trickle down impact on retention or expansion revenue? And it's like, by the time you've gotten to that level of impact, there's like five core assumptions that you have made off of perhaps very, very little historical evidence, right? And people are smart, but like this many assumptions piled on top of each other really get you to a very unreliable number. And the reality is like, I'm not trying to say that people doing ROI analyses are, are manipulating the outcome, but data is highly open to interpretation. You know, how many times have people done the sort of like cost benefit analysis on a list of features and then, for, you know, re-ranked them by weighted averages and then said, hmm, this order doesn't feel right. And then you adjust and tweak some of, you know, the inputs until the order feels right. <laughs> and you can always I, <laughs> manipulate data, right? Yeah, and, and like, look, no one is saying that that's inherently like bad, but I, I do think it's flawed. And so, one thing that you know I very much encourage our teams to do is, if you have this extra hour or two hours to really advocate for an idea at the stage of our company, you know, instead of trying to quantify the number of engineering hours that are going to go in and the amount of impact on on revenue it's going to have, let's think through it. In fact with a, dip, a couple of different mental models. So what is the logic for doing this? If we build this feature, if we solve this problem, what other opportunities does it open up for us, right? So that's really thinking about optimizing for option value down the line. Alternatively, you can think about things like perishability, right? So if I don't solve this problem today, is a competitor going to solve it and then take this opportunity away from me? If I don't solve it today, is a really important customer in fact going to churn because we know they are already evaluating other vendors? Or is this in fact a problem that we can solve six months down the line? It doesn't have to happen today. And you know, you can also think about this in terms of opportunity cost. So if we think that solving this problem is going to take one design resource and two engineers for two months, what else could you be doing in that time? And, and so all of this, I sort of lump together into what I call just logical reasoning, right? It's, it's to step back and think through what are all my assumptions? What are all the risks and unknowns? What are all the bad things that can happen? And then put together a case for why, you know, you should invest in something. Completely agree. And I think people talk now about like being data inspired or data guided as opposed to like being data driven. And we use data-driven, we talk about that a lot at Pendo, and I think the, you know, there's a little semantics on the end, you know, but the idea is never to be, you know, take data at its value entirely and do make all of your decisions based upon that uh, without testing that data, you know, taking, deriving hypotheses from that data and testing those hypotheses, right? Like I talked to Wyatt from uh, Patreon just yesterday, and we, and I'm sure the podcast will be a week or two before this <laughs> one, and we, uh, 
we talked about you know things like painted door tests and making sure that your interpretation, because data you know in the large case always needs to be interpreted, yeah. is correct, right? And actually spending the time testing that, and I think that's an important aspect of building out these roadmaps. Do you guys spend a lot of time like saying, oh, you know, our intuition and the data is driving us here. Let's test whether that's really true, whether it's pricing or a new feature set or customer demand for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, you know, Spoke has now been in market for about seven months, right? So we, as a product, as a publicly accessible product, we haven't been out there for that long. And so I'm sure you did a lot of this at growth at Intercom, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think like there's times when, you know, you're in a space of optimizing. And I think when you're in a space of optimizing, almost by definition, you're trying to see if your current users can do something better, do something faster, do more of it. Those are really easy ways to run very database tests, right? Because your, your current customer base are the people that you can run experiments on. But when you are either a new product and still establishing your footprint, or when you're trying to, quite frankly, do something like change pricing, testing those things on your existing customers doesn't work very well because your existing customers have already shifted their mental model to like absorb all the things that you've told them about how your product works. And they're going to look at your reactive pricing changes very differently than the brand new person. And you know they may or may not be the customers that you're trying to attract with this new feature or this new set of problems that you're solving for. So in those cases, you know, both at Intercom and at Spoke, I would say we do a lot of user research. The, the trade-off is, you know, sample size, but I think if you can do really deep qualitative discovery interviews with five, six, seven people, and you're seeing trends in those and insights in those, that is just as powerful, if not more so, than running some statistically robust test. So I think it's it's more around like aligning the right type of data and the right type of tool to the problems that you're solving. So new unknown problems, do loads of research. Existing problems that you're optimizing, ideally, you know, do quantitative data-driven tests. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a mix between the two, right? And yeah. how you manage a, a product or a product portfolio that's very important. Yeah. So you work in kind of the AI space now, right? Yeah. Um, I use that term loosely because everyone <laughs> seems to be in the AI exactly. space to some extent. And exactly. how people define AI tends to be a lot of machine learning oriented today, mm -hmm. you know, less like rules-based AI. Exactly. So. You know, again, one of the problems that we're, we're solving at Spoke is this idea that people at a company, when they're collaborating, are oftentimes asking each other for help. That help might be informational help, like earlier today I asked you what the Wi-Fi password was. And that help might also just be like actual tactical help are asking a designer to put together a landing page mock-up for you, right? Or you're asking a researcher to put together a research plan. And a lot of these things are one, highly repetitive, and two, you know, are things that like software can absolutely automate for you. Um, you know, one thing I like to say is, or, or rather, you know, an example I sometimes give is how often this week has somebody asked you a question, let's say over Slack, and what you did is you took that question and you went to your Dropbox or your Google Drive and you searched. And what you found was a link to a document and then you slacked them that link back, right? And if you found yourself doing that this week, I also like to ask like, do you know what else does that? Like that's what search engines do. That's what Google does. You type in a query, it searches and it sends you a link back. And if Google can do that, you know, why have our coworkers, right? Be, be human search engines. Like the value of the collaboration, the interaction can be so much more than that. And so a lot of the AI we talk about is not necessarily, you know, 
how to spoke pretend to be a human in your slack you know workspace that's, that's i think not what we're trying to do at all in some ways it's you know how do we almost automate and help people leapfrog over all of the navigation and the ui clicks that without ai you would have to do interesting so talk to me a little bit more about ai and how you think it's going to affect product managers i think that today we live in this really awkward gap where consumers have heard so much about AI and they've seen various versions of bots, you know, some which try to be really funny and, and human and others that just don't work. But there's, I think, a really, really high expectation that when a bot comes into the picture or when there's AI that it's suddenly as performant as a human. And by and large, I think like that's just not true. Like the, the software by and large isn't able to do that today, at least not with the amounts of data that like startups are sitting on, you know? Obviously you can see companies like Google being able to do so much more, but for, for most of the companies and the apps out there doing something in AI, it's incremental help. And so for product managers, I think that, you know, two things, one, at the end of the day, AI is just another solution. It's another tool to solve a problem. So in some ways, I would say it shouldn't change the way product managers work and think at all, right? You're still trying to understand your customer, their problems. You just now have one more tool in your toolkit to think about how to solve the problem. I think the other way it impacts you know, product managers that are thinking more holistically is I think we have to do a lot more work to think about expectation setting and explaining. So, you know, if you end up designing a bot that is very anthropomorphic, right, and is very chatty and has lots of personality, then maybe you are continuing to set an expectation that your bot behaves like a human does. And so I think, it, you know, again, I think the core job of a product manager isn't changing in this world, but I think there are a lot more potential traps that you can fall into uh, if, if, you know, if you end up using this tool, you know, not in like a super wise way. Is it different if you look at, you know, consumer and enterprise software? That's a good question. I mean, to some extent in the enterprise world, what I've seen is users want a lot more control and the stakes are potentially a lot higher, right? In enterprise software, you're usually building software that is part of someone's workflow. And so they need to be able to explain why something happened. You know, Spoke can be used by a lot of HR teams to help disseminate information about benefits and, and company policies. But imagine if suddenly people are asking Spoke, hey, can I get a pay raise? And there is this like black box of algorithms where we either spit out the answer, yes, you get 10% pay raise, or no, you don't get a pay raise. And we'd be asking every day. <laughs> yeah. Like that wouldn't work very well, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, the, the HR person or the business person on the other side needs to be able to explain why the answer is a certain way. Um, so I think that amount of control actually still lends itself very well to these like rules engines that historically have been set up. So I think we just have to be careful about, you know, what is the balance of like, trust us, our, our learning models know better versus saying here, you have all the control. Yeah. Aren't, aren't rules engines kind of AI too? Yeah. Maybe not how people look at AI today. Yeah. But well, you know, I think that's... You asked yesterday, therefore, that's why. I mean, it can be a quick answer. You asked yesterday, therefore, you're not going to get another one today. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, our pay review cycle is in October. You're eligible because you've been here for 18 months. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that so much of it is, you know, how do you design that user experience? 
Because for a long time now, we've had rules engines of, and sort of logic builders, right? Where you basically in some sort of UI, you say, if this and this, then that. That's existed forever. What, you know, what we're trying to do, for example, at Spoke and what I see a lot of these companies doing is how do we help propose maybe some of those rule sets that you can modify so that you don't have to sit there and click 20 different buttons and fill out, you know, a bunch of different check marks and forms. How do we make that process more intuitive, easier? And so again, I think a lot of where you see this initial amount of AI is making the interface, the navigation and the interactions a lot smarter and a lot lighter. So let's step back a little bit, talk a little bit more about your experience. Tell, tell me what you've taken away from each of the jobs you've had, right? And what were the big learnings and how those jobs might have affected you know, you as a leader in product management. And let's start with your, the wine startup, mm. right? And, and move forward from there. Wow, that, that's a big question. Um, I think with any early startup, it's the amount of hustle required and the amount of just sheer willingness to make this thing survive is something that I, I don't think I could have appreciated until I was like in that seat. That every single morning, if you don't get up and push forward as hard and as fast as you can, no one else will. And that's a feeling that's entirely different when you are in a more established company. So, you know, I think I, I certainly have a lot of respect for and admiration for people who are in, you know, the, the founder roles. I like that. I think that's a good learning from the startup hustle. I mean, and you could think about it as like grit too. Like, yeah. you know, the corresponding to hustle is grit is being able to, you know, keep going even when things aren't quite perfect because there's a lot of learning at early stage companies yeah. and with early products, as I'm sure you're aware now. So what about the, the next one? Yeah, well, no, and I think just one thing to add to that is in some ways we live in a world right now, I think, where the media celebrates overnight successes, right? Where all of a sudden it's like, oh, look at, you know, look at Airtable, look at how quickly they've grown and, and they just came out of nowhere or even Intercom. But like Intercom is seven years in and Airtable is what also like six years in and and it takes a really, really long time, and it is a slog, and you are fighting for every customer and every feature and every quarter. And so I think that having you know, at least seen some of it in the very early stages is, is very grounding when you then read all the media about, like, oh, look, this all happened overnight, you know? Yeah, I mean, the media sells a story. You know, I'm not a big believer in this whole fake news, but they put their spin on... You know, the, the facts, so to speak, to tell a story to some extent, especially when you're talking about, you know, things like startups and yeah. success stories. And I, I think they do the opposite of that, too, a little bit when things are troubling. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you know, doom and gloom, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I think that sells Sensationalist. A bit. Yes. Yeah. You know, the little sensationalism sells a little bit. Yeah. So. You know, Teespring was super fascinating because, you know, I went into Teespring expecting it to be sort of an e-commerce experience, right? It's a marketplace, it's e-commerce. But one of the most interesting things about Teespring is that it was originally a software company that then acquired and built out a manufacturing facility in Kentucky. And when you are in the process of dealing with physical goods, let alone, you know, hundreds of hourly workers, the software almost takes a back seat. I remember, you know, one winter we had recently shipped some change to the way these fulfillment jobs got assigned to the factory. 
to you know optimize for how quickly they could get printed and out the door. And there was one day when we got a ton of customer support complaints saying that you know all of these orders were very, very late and people were complaining about it. And we, of course, looked through the code to make sure that the code wasn't broken and like the code didn't seem broken. And we like couldn't figure out what was going on. And so I like slacked someone in Kentucky and I was like, hey, we're trying to figure out what's going on, but all of these orders are late. The code seems to be fine. And they were like, oh yeah, it's like snowing today. So a bunch of people didn't show up to work. And I was like, oh, <laughs> the software doesn't account for weather and it doesn't account for human behavior. And there- <laughs> Especially snow in Kentucky. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of great companies today. I mean, even if you think about Uber and Lyft, let alone like the DoorDashes and Postmates of the world, we talk about them as software tech companies. But at the end of the day, it's like humans that have to show up and do the work and the software can't control the human and the complexity is just enormous. So I think that after Teespring, one, gained a lot of appreciation for how hard software design and product design can be when, when there's a lot of you know, human interactions at play. And I think I, quite frankly, you know, was eager to get back into a world of just more pure software. Got it. So then on to Intercom, right? Mm-hmm. Probably the most formative thing and maybe the way Intercom has shaped me the most is just this really thoughtful, principled way of thinking through product and problems. And you know, I think a lot of that comes straight from, from the founders and the background in product and design that the founders have. But we would spend weeks, if not months, just focused on defining a problem long before it ever got into design. Um, and the amount of iterations of research that things went through, the amount of internal and intellectual debate to really hone and refine every single word that was used to describe the problem, that level of focus and diligence and just, you know, I think professionalism was something that I had never seen prior to Intercom and, and certainly is something that, you know, I'd love to build out at Spoke. And it's, it takes a lot of discipline to do that. I think when you're at an early stage company, when this desire to make changes quickly, when you know that if you're not making changes quickly, you're leaving room for your competitors to come in and do something similar and grab market share from you. It takes so much discipline to say, but at the end of the day, if we ship crap, right, then we have bad things out there. You know, I think the reality is like you have to calibrate because I think one downside and one, one obvious trade-off is it can be very, very slow to make changes. And so, you know, I think the teams at Intercom are also calibrating on that, but, you know, super, super uh, disciplined, thoughtful, rigorous design thinking. And that leads to where you are today, which is, I'm sure, relatively early, so to speak, as far as your learnings. I mean, a lot, a lot of growth still to go. I'm sure, if I ask you this question two years from now, there's going to be maybe a different answer. But what have you taken away from your experience so far at, you know, the startup you're at? Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of things really drew me to this opportunity at, at Spoke. So in some ways, I think of Spoke as analogous to Intercom, but serving a very different audience. So where Intercom is building product and building software, to help teams interface with external customers, right? It's very similarly to you as at Pendo. Spoke is really building software to help teams internally collaborate. And you know, the idea that 
if you are joining a new company as a new employee, it's incredibly hard to navigate, to know where to find things, and quite frankly, even to know who to ask for help. That somehow it's crazy that when cross-functional teams come together to collaborate, let's say product design, marketing, and sales, there's still so much miscommunication. There's still so much of decks and documentation flying everywhere and people somehow still not managing to stay on the same page. You know, those are the problems that we, we really want to go solve. And it's a huge luxury to get to actually solve a problem that I personally identify with. I think it's actually pretty rare in you know, the software world that you do that. By and large, you're solving you know, problems for personas that you are not, um, which is why you do these you know, big, very empathetic leaps of you know, discovery. And, and yeah, I, I certainly think that you know, a lot of how we build product at Spoke is inspired by how I've seen product get built by Intercom, you know, a very deep, maniacal focus on understanding the problems to be solved. You know, I think Intercom very purely champions a job to be done model, whereas a lot of people really champion sort of the more persona model. And I think we take like a nice matrix of the two. What's the, what's the advantage of the, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of jobs to be done. In fact, uh, I have a podcast that, that should be publishing soon, which will mean it's like eight weeks before this one with Bob Moesta, who talks a lot about jobs to be done. Ryan Singer, also publishing soon, <laughs> uh, meaning before you listen to this one, you'll probably hear Ryan Singer, uh, who's very focused on that too. Talk to me about why you have kind of a hybrid approach there and the advantages of both, or the advantages of the hybrid. Mm. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, um, so I think one of the really interesting things about jobs to be done is that it tends to be framed in a particular scenario. So, you know, Clayton Christensen has that, you know, very traditional one, right, which is uh, the, the, his milkshake example. You know, when I am, you know, driving to work or when I have this long commute in the morning and I'm hungry, right, I want something that is very filling and easy to eat. Um, and so then, you know, the solution here ends up being a milkshake. But that, that when and that scenario is incredibly important. So it's, you know, trying to really understand what part of someone's day, what part of someone's workflow, you know, does your solution get used? Because, you know, unless you are the iPhone, people are only interacting with your product at various moments of a day. And now with the new iPhone feature where it tells you how much time you're using things, maybe it's yeah. going to be maybe it's going to move more towards that. Yeah, maybe that takes also a lot of discipline. <laughs> I think it takes deleting Instagram off my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack us there. No, um, I think that's actually one of the most interesting things about jobs to be done that personas doesn't capture, right? Because persona sort of takes this person as though this person and their needs is the same throughout their 24 hours, and and that's just not true. And I think the the main thing that jobs to be done then loses is that if a salesperson and a marketing person and a CS person all have this job, the way they describe their job is different. The way they find their products when they're searching on Google is entirely different. So I think the intersection is nice because it allows you to speak the language that is relevant for the persona you're talking to. Uh, It allows you to think about designing your solution in a much more almost surgical environment. So you're not just painting this sort of generalized picture of what a marketing person needs to do. So while the jobs might be similar, the personas impact how they approach it or when? Yeah. um, I mean, take employee onboarding, right? So HR teams and IT teams are two very core teams that adopt a product like Spook. And they both are very important in onboarding a new employee. But the way an HR person talks about new hire onboarding is actually pretty different than the way IT people talk about new like desk setup. And, and you know, again, the language is different. The, the way they go through 
I guess the way they encounter that task is pretty different, right? So HR might look at a new employee end to end. So how do I onboard Eric and what are all the steps for Eric? Whereas IT might say, okay, this Monday I have 10 new people starting. How do I go and make sure that they all have their, you know, desk set up correctly? Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about trends you see in product management. What upcoming trends do you see? And it was interesting actually being out at industry, which is where we met um, in Cleveland, because so many of the product managers in the audience are not based in San Francisco or based in New York. And I almost took that dichotomy to see where maybe some of the trends are and where the differences are. One thing that I had noticed is, you know, a lot of the speakers and even the thing that I talked about at industry, one, focus heavily on this idea that product managers own understanding problems with their customers rather than own solution delivery. And then the second thing is this idea of like research and design being such a core part of of product. I think that a while ago, I mean, I don't know, some ambiguous five, 10 years ago, or maybe even not that long ago, I think we heard a lot about how, like, how should product managers work with engineers? And engineers were always like the other counterpart. And I think that now I hear so much more of it as how do product and design work together? And I think design has really gained a much stronger seat at the table where it's far less about, you know, can you make this low fidelity mock-up pretty, which I think, you know, once upon a time that was sort of how design had a seat at the table. Now it's much more around bringing design in as a thought partner in defining the problem and then of course defining that solution. So possibly that is, you know, I think one of the biggest shifts that we see. And you actually see that also in hiring. I think that you have now actually in a lot of companies much stronger design to engineering ratios than you used to. Like in the past, you might have one designer supporting 10, 12 engineers. But now, I mean, I think, you know, even in some of the teams at Intercom, you'll see, you know, one designer maybe matched with like five or six engineers. Interesting. I definitely see that. And I think it's a great trend that the tight coupling of design and product at the earliest stages, not like, oh, we built this now, make it look pretty, put a nice veneer on it or paint this house for us, so to speak, you know, or be the interior decorator when the rooms are already all designed. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great trend. So let's turn this to you a little bit for a couple of final questions. What, what's your favorite product and why is it your favorite? Yeah, this is actually a really hard question for me to think through. And I don't know, I don't know why it was so hard, but... It seems to be hard for a lot of people, actually. And I think it's just because it's not, some, a, it's not something they think about consciously a lot. Like, they use certain things yeah. and they love them, and then, but they don't really think about what's my favorite and why is it my favorite. So it seems to be a little bit of a struggle. I don't know that I entirely know why, but that was my hypothesis that I just stated. So my litmus test for what was my favorite product ended up being, okay, what are products that I will like sometimes get into like little fights with people over, right? Where I will like defend my product choice. And I realized it was Google Maps. And, you know, this engineer I used to work with at Intercom was like a super Apple fanboy. And he would always use Apple Maps. And did he make it to his meetings? <laughs> Just <laughs> kidding, people at Apple. We actually once took a, we went on a team offsite and we took two cars and one car very logically navigated using Google Maps and our car navigated using Apple Maps and we end up in a different city than we were supposed to. And so every time someone loads up Apple Maps, I will just get really riled up and explain why they need to use Google Maps instead. So that was kind of, you know, my like, aha, like this is actually a product I really emotionally care about. And 
other than the fact that I trust Google Maps, I think it has completely changed my life in terms of how I travel. You know, I remember as a kid, my mom would, before we went anywhere, she would go to MapQuest and she would like enter in the address and we'd print out all these maps. Or before we went on a big road trip, my dad would swing by AAA, we'd pick up these huge books, right? And we'd fight over like how to orient these maps. And there was so much planning and very little space for spontaneity. Because if you got to the wrong place, you were just stuck. Now I travel all around the world. I mean, I'm going to Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan next week, you know, like crazy countries, and I have planned nothing. And I've planned nothing in part because I know I can download Google Maps offline, and then I can just wing it, and I won't get lost. And that amount of freedom that this piece of mapping software has given me is life-changing. So. Yeah, I have to plan my food and wine, you know, <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> That's, that's interesting. I'm a Waze user myself, which is now Google, but I just, the, the reason I moved from using Google predominantly to using Waze was just because it, it did that real-time traffic and also the alerts for where there's police. So yeah. if you were on the highway going a little bit faster than you should, you could slow down just to make sure, you know, you didn't get a ticket. And I'm sure that has saved lots of people, you know, because sometimes there's speed traps there that are a little inappropriate. Like the speed limit goes down for no reason and there's a cop sitting there. It's good that when, you know, Waze tells you about that. Uh, not advising anyone to speed out there, not saying I do or anything, but yes, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Waze, which obviously is now being integrated. I guess into Google we'll yeah. see how that goes so that's cool yeah love love how maps have changed things for us where you know we can just take a we're in traffic we can just take a right turn out of it too and it'll be like it'll pick it up and it'll tell you where to go you yeah. know it'll bring you back to your destination which is awesome it's freedom it's liberating so almost one final question usually yeah. a final question but we'll have a little <laughs> surprise at the end uh, so let's start with three words to describe yourself I think like many product people I am deeply curious by personality, I'm also very enthusiastic, and I like to be very forthright uh, and clear with people. Awesome. Well, thanks. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs> <laughs>